You know, something you discover in relationships is that people change, um, sometimes for the better, but not always. Um, after Brianne and I got engaged, I started to change. Um, suddenly, I wasn't quite exactly the person that she had agreed to marry, um, and it caused her to start to rethink and wonder if this really would be such a wise decision. Um, because all of a sudden, I had changed into somebody who is really into professional wrestling. Um, so now many of our conversations would involve and revolve around me telling her all about the drama and the intricacies of all the performers and my favorites and why Daniel Bryan really deserved to be the champion. Um, that's kind of a more humorous way people change and despite my weirdness, Brianna still married me. Um, but not all changes are always so light-hearted, are they? Um, sometimes as people change, it begins to put strain on the relationship. Many of our friendships, all of us could point out to ones that have drifted and shifted and eventually broken as we've changed and grown apart. Or marriages can break and fall apart as people transform in different directions. But there is one person who never changes. One person who always stays the same. And this is good news because he's already perfect. And his lack of change is what gives us security, and that person is God. And so this morning, we're going to look at the unchanging nature of God and why that is good news for us and good news in our spiritual apathy. And our passage this morning in Malachi 3 is about a lot of things. It's about God's unchangingness. It's also about justice and tithing and giving. And I think one of the best ways to kind of tie it all together here is to focus on God's unchanging nature or His immutability. And so if you have your Bible, if you would turn with me to Malachi 2, we're going to start in verse um, 17, and we are going to go all the way to the end of, not to all the way to the end of chapter 3, but to 15. And so we're going to start looking with God's attribute, um, and then we're going to see how that affects God's justice, and then how that affects um, what we should give. And so if you would, if you would stand with me, as is our normal habit um, for the reading of God's Word, starting in Malachi. Chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied God, the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? For behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple, and the messenger of his covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? Like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be as pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old in the former years. And I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, Against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless. Against those who thrust aside the sojourner who, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. For from the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. 
You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into my storehouse, there may food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down on you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations shall call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? And you? But you have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking in the morning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and escape. As the prophet Isaiah reminds us, grass withers, the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I ask um, that you would be with us this morning. And Lord, would you not only be with us um, here in this place, would you be with all of the churches and all of the places all over the globe where your people gather today to worship Jesus? Lord, would would your gospel be proclaimed? Would your people be strengthened and encouraged? And would you be glorified by everything that we say and do? We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. You can be seated. So point number one, we're going to start by looking at God's attribute, and it is that God is immutable. That God is immutable. Now, immutable is a big theological word. It really just means unchanging. Um, It's one of the attributes of God. We studied it in Wednesday. I thought it was only a couple months ago, but it was back in 2021. Um, In our men's Bible study, we're studying God's attributes right now as well. So I'm not going to cover everything about this attribute this morning, but um, if you missed that Wednesday or if you've forgotten it and need a refresher, there's some extra copies of my my notes from that lesson. Um, But God is worth studying, right? And his attributes are worth reflecting on certainly more than once. Um, But the key verse here, I think, in this section is in verse 6 of chapter 3. For I, the Lord, do not change. Now, our God does not change. That might sound kind of strange to us. After all, I mean, everybody changes. But God doesn't change because He does not need to. He's already perfect. He doesn't change because He can't get better and He can't get worse. He cannot become more gracious than he already is. He cannot become more holy. He cannot know, he already knows everything, so he can't learn anything new or learn something that changes his perspective or his mind. And this is a good thing. This is why we can have hope. This is why we can have confidence. This is why we can have faith in our God. Because one of the challenges in the ancient world, these gods, the gods of Egypt, of Canaan and Babylon, is their gods were fickle. They did change. They changed all the time. They changed their minds. Their moods constantly shifted. You weren't always sure if they were going to keep their promises that they made because these were changing gods. But our God does not change. He was the same yesterday, today, tomorrow, and forever. As we read in our call to worship this morning, His unchanging nature is part of what gives us comfort because if He could change too, then He wouldn't be God anymore. Right? Because He might change. He might lose His godness. Or he could have been a creature who was created and then shifted and changed and became God. But our God does not change. And he is not fickle. Our God is the I am, not the I might be. Or I might be for now. We'll see later. He is the I am. And we can trust that that God will keep his promises. When you look at the rest of verse 6, he says, Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. 
Now, this isn't a threat. This is a reassurance of God's grace. He is reminding them that he is not like those idols that they are worshiping instead of him. Because other gods would lose their patience. Other gods would get angry. They'd lose their temper at all of Israel's spiritual apathy that we've been studying as we've gone through this book. Other gods would tire of these constant questions and doubts. But our God is unchanging. And our God is the God of Jacob. Part of the reason that God likes to use that title, why He likes to say, I am the God of Jacob, is to remind us that He is the same God. The same God who appeared to Abraham, who appeared to Isaac, who appeared to Jacob. He is the God that we gather and worship here this morning. He is not changed. And His mercy still stands. Because of His mercy and because of His promises, we're not consumed. Instead, we're shown love and patience and grace. And we always will be. God isn't going to change and become less gracious or less patient. Our God will not become a God who breaks His promises and His words because our God is immutable or He is unchanging. So, but why start in verse 6? Again, because I think His unchanging nature or because they start to doubt that. They don't think that God is just anymore. They're not sure that He really is going to keep all of His promises. They used to believe that God cared about things like justice, but now they're not so sure. It seems like evil has a free reign. And so point number two, because God is immutable, His justice is coming. If you're taking notes in your bulletin, because God is immutable, His justice is coming. And we see this objection. It's at the end of chapter 2 and in verse 17. It says, "'You have wearied the Lord with your words.'" Okay, they've worn God out. This is metaphorical language, okay, because God does not actually um, grow weary. But picture a weary parent who's been home with the kids all day long, and they just keep whining, and it's been a bad day. And God is really tired of listening to all of their complaints and all of their you says. But you say, well, how have we wearied him? And the rest of 17, by saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Now, God is worn out and He's weary. And he's worn out because of two complaints they keep making. The first is they are lying about God. They're saying that what is evil is good. They're saying that things that God decreed in His Word as wrong are now fine and acceptable. But worse than that, they're saying that God actually loves it. That God is now pleased with sin and idolatry and adultery. Now, this isn't new. This isn't something that just started happening today in our day. This was happening all the way back in Malachi's day as well. There will always be those who say, oh, no, God has changed. This act or this thing that we thought was evil and wrong, it's actually good now. But God's righteousness and God's justice do not change. They also weary God by saying, where is the God of justice? They don't believe that God stops wickedness anymore, that He is continually allowing evil in the world and He's not doing anything about it. I don't know if you've seen there recently several, uh, some devastating earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. And tens of thousands of people have died. And it's hard to look at the images um, of children being pulled from the rubble and not ask, where's the God of justice? Honestly, I've had to stop looking at them. I can't emotionally handle seeing that. And so just the grief just kind of overwhelms me. Um, but when I'm faced with what I don't know and what I don't understand, I cling to what I do. And I know that God is immutable. He is unchanging. And we know that He is a God of justice. 
And we believe that he hasn't changed. He has not become a God who hates justice anymore. He's still just. But his verdict has not yet sounded. We're only in the middle of the story. And God's justice is coming. It's coming. It's not here yet, but it will be. Chapter 3 begins, it says, Well, behold, I send my messenger. And he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will come suddenly into his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So God is coming. God's justice is coming. And he will send messengers ahead of himself to remind us of this fact. And we've been studying this very messenger to God's temple in the Gospel of Luke that we're taking a brief break from. John the Baptist, who we just spent all those weeks looking at, he is the messenger sent to prepare the way for God, right? What has he been doing in his role? If you remember in Luke 1 through 3, as he keeps saying, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand because Jesus is coming. God's justice is coming. Everybody needs to repent. You got to repent when God's justice comes. And, but look what he says this day will be like in verse 2, chapter 3, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? Because the day of God's justice is going to be a terrifying day. Now, it will be a joyous day for many, but not for everyone. Now, the day that God pulls back the curtain on reality, the day that Christ rides across the sky and angels and all of the heavenly host are with him as the trumpet sounds, the day that every knee bows and every tongue confesses, the day that God stops holding back and He reveals Himself in all of His glory and awesome wonder. That is a day that will knock everyone to their knees. But those who have put their faith and their hope in Jesus, it won't be a day of judgment. It will be a day of refinement. So he continues, he says, For He is like a refiner's fire. Like fuller's soap, he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings of righteousness to the Lord. So the day of God's justice, it is a day of fire and washing, but the refiner is not out to destroy and break. He's there to restore. He takes the tarnished gold and silver and he makes it new, like the day you first got it. He takes the soap and he washes away all of our sins. And so he does so as an act of justice and grace, not because our good works have earned it, not because deep down on the inside we're beautiful gold, but because of Jesus' righteousness has been credited to our account. Because Jesus comes and he takes and he makes us a new creation. And so on behalf of Jesus, we put our faith in him. We can be refined on that day of justice instead of being burned away. So if you don't know Jesus, if you're here and you're not a Christian, or if hearing about the day of justice terrifies you, which it should, know there is an escape. And there is salvation and deliverance through Jesus Christ. And His death on the cross and His spilling of His blood happened to save us. And the salvation is refinement. It is available to any sinner who wants it. Well, you have to cry out to the Son of David and beg for mercy. Ask Him to give you salvation and grace. Give your life to Him and be saved now and forevermore. But notice, too, the one who is being purified and refined here. He says, he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. We talked about the apathetic priests last week, the sons of Levi. Well, Jesus is going to take them and he will refine them again. He will remove those apathetic hearts of stone and give them new 
hearts. And then they will bring righteous offerings. No longer are they going to bring these uncleaned and blemished animals towards the Lord and blasphemy. Now they will come with the right animals. And more importantly, they will come with the right hearts. They will be accepted and declared righteous because of what God does, because of the purifying fire of Jesus, the fire that burns away all of our sins and impurities and leaves only Christ. Verse 4, And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and in the former years. All of the nation then will be refined and made clean. All of God's people will get to worship in spirit and truth, just as in the, day, the greatest days of revival in the days of old. Just as the days right when the temple was first created under Solomon, how glorious a day that must have been. The days of worship when you had Moses himself leading the sacrifices. Malachi says it will be like the good old days, only better. For those who have faith, God's justice will be a glorious day. They will see all things made right. But for others, it will be a terror, and it will be the day when the wicked finally have to answer for their sins. Verse 5, Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear false, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Now, this is not an exhaustive list by any means of all those who will face God's judgment and justice, but it shows us some of who will face justice when it comes. And this justice will be swift. Now, we might object and say, I don't know, Jesus, this justice seems pretty slow to me. But it means that on the day of justice, there is no more delay. When it comes, it's here, and now it's too late. And God only delays now as a means of grace, as His kindness, to give us time to repent. But one day, that delay will be over. And the sorcerers will face judgment. Those who try to manipulate God. Those who worship demons will face justice. Those who commit adultery will face judgment. Those who wrong their spouses, who ignore God's commands for human sexuality, they will face swift justice. Those who are liars, who swear falsely, who lie in court, who manipulate the law, they will all face God's law. Those who oppress their workers, who cheat their employees, who don't pay them a fair wage, who lay off staff while giving themselves massive bonuses, they will face God's justice. Those who oppress the widow, who take advantage of those who are alone, who try to scam them and steal what they have, they will face God's justice. Those who oppress the orphan, use foster kids as a paycheck and then abuse them, who treat them as problems instead of as human beings that God's love, that God loves, will face God's justice. Those who oppress the sojourner, who wrong the immigrant and see them only as a problem, who cast them out of their land like Moab did to Israel when they wandered in on their way to the promised land, they will face God's justice. All who do not fear God, who do not care for His name, who believe this is all make-believe and just an opiate for the masses, they will face God's justice one day. Beloved, justice is coming. And you may be waiting for justice. Maybe you have been wronged by the wicked. You've had your wages stolen. You've seen others thrust you aside. Those who you love have been wrongly killed. Those who have sinned against you, you've seen them escape justice. Well, they might have escaped man's justice, but no one will escape God's. 
unless they repent and give their lives to Christ. So God's justice is coming. So turn to Jesus so that justice might come in your favor. And then trust in his justice because it comes one day. So Israel is doubting God's immutability. They're, they're doubting his justice, but they also are doubting something else. They used to believe that God was worth giving to and worshiping, but they don't think so any longer. Um, they think maybe that was something that worked in the early days, but something's changed. So point number three is because God is immutable, he is worthy of all that we have. Because God is immutable, he is worthy of all we have. But Israel now, they don't believe that God is worth serving anymore. They think there's better gods out there. There's other stuff that's worth their time. Verse 7 says, From the days of your father you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? So you see, the people, they have turned away from God. Instead of turning towards him in repentance, they have turned towards their sins. They're not keeping his commandments and God is calling them back. Over and over, this is what the prophets do. He call, they call the people of God to repent, to turn around. And God promises, if you repent, I will come to you. Turn to me, I will turn to you. James 4, 8, draw near to me, I will draw near to you. All you have to do is turn around. So the people ask, well, okay, how can we repent? In verse 8, God says something different. He says, well, man robbed God, yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and in your contributions. Now, we don't talk about money a lot at Tanglewood. Um, I don't know how to talk about Malachi chapter 3 without talking about it. So here we are. We're going to talk about tithes and contributions. Um, but the place that God goes for to reveal their repentance is in their tithe. Okay, it is in the money that they are supposed to give to God. And God says, you are robbing me. It's not that they aren't giving enough. God calls it robbery. Um, verse 9, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. He reminds them of the curses. We talked about these curses last week. They're the curses in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. Curses like famine and curses like a poor harvest. And they're being cursed because of their sins and how they have wronged God. They have robbed Him. And God calls this robbery because it is all His money. And it's not just money. Everything, everywhere, it is God's. It all belongs to Him. And so our tithes, our offerings, our giving to churches, our giving to nonprofits, it's not charity. It's not kindness. We're giving God what He's owed, giving Him what's His anyway. And failure to give is not a failure to be generous. It is robbery, as God says. So 10, He says, bring the full tithe to the storehouse. There may be food in my house. So we've got to stop here and talk about what a full tithe means. So tithe is a fancy way, really, of saying kind of 10%. Okay, and so usually um, when we talk about the tithe, that's what people are referring to. And this began back with Abraham. And when he gave 10% of all that he had to the high priest Melchizedek, it was a foreshadowing Jesus. Um, in Israel, they're required to give 10% of all of their income, all of their harvest, all of their cattle, all of their stuff to the Lord. But they're actually required to do a lot more than that. This is something that can get lost. Because there seem to be three separate tithes that Israel is supposed to give. And people argue about the percentages, how do they come down to, but the focus isn't on that. The focus is that Israel is not giving what they are supposed to give to God. And what they are giving, they're clearly not giving with the right heart. And so you can study on your own if you want to read these tithes more. They're in Deuteronomy 12, Deuteronomy 14, and Deuteronomy 26. I'll go over them really briefly, but those are the three chapters in 12, 14, 26, and Deuteronomy. So, right, the first part's the main one we think of. It's the 10% of their harvest and their income. 
And they're supposed to bring this to the temple, to the storehouse, and this provides for the priests and for the Levites because they, they serve the Lord and this is how they will survive as part of that. But then there is another tithe. Another tithe says, bring your grain, your wine, your oil, and the firstborn of your flock. Okay, bring 10% of that to the temple and now come and have a potluck feast in worship. And you eat it here at the temple and the priests eat it with you and you eat it there. And if you're unable to make it to the temple on the time that it's here, go out and buy some amazing food, go out in a field and have a feast in worship and thanksgiving of God. That's another part of their time. Then there's another part, there's sometimes called the, the poor tax. So it's every three years they're to do the same thing, to bring all of that fine food in and have a feast, but this time to invite all of the poor, the widow, the orphan, the fatherless, and the sojourners who are traveling with them, bring them all in and feast with them in thanksgiving to God. All of this is part of the tithe, and they're not participating in it somehow. Somewhere they're holding back. Maybe one of those three they're not doing, they're not doing any of it, I don't know. Malachi doesn't tell us, but somehow they think that holding back from God is going to lead to blessing, but robbing God only ever leaves, leads to curses. So the natural question we have as Christians, right, or any discussion on tithing comes down to numbers, right? Well, well preacher, tell me how much I need to give. Okay, I, I think that's the wrong question. I, I think the better question should be, well, how much can we give? How much can we give away? Because we're, we're no longer under the legalistic requirements of the law. But God is not any less worthy of all that we have because He has not changed. I mean, when Jesus died, did God become worthy of only 3% of our money instead of 10? I think He's worthy of everything. Now, I'm afraid that sometimes we're just like the rich young ruler. And we ask, well, what do I have to give to be saved? What do I have to give in order to be a Christian? Well, Jesus tells us, well, it's not okay, 10% and then you're good. No, it's everything. Sell everything that you have and give to the poor and then come and follow me. And he walks away sad because he loved what he had. So the question I have when we ask that question, are we asking it in faith because we want to be faithful or are we asking it because we love what we have and we don't want to give too much of it away? So I'm not going to give you a number. The true answer is that everything's God, right? If you pick a number, whatever it is, and stop there, you probably miss the point. When you read the book of Acts, what did they do? Often whenever somebody was in need, they sold and gave away what they had to provide for those who didn't have any. They were even more generous. They didn't stop at any percentage. They worshiped God with all of it, and so should we. I don't know exactly how that works out, but it's all God's. We should act like it. So God tries His best, right, to call them in obedience in the rest of verse 10. And we're going to talk about this. He says, therefore, put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I won't open the windows of heaven for you and pour down on you a blessing until there is no more need. Eleven, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it won't destroy the fruits of your soil and the vine of your field that shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. God tells them, if you stop robbing me, if you give me the full tithe, I'm going to bless you again. I will give you the blessings of Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. All of your crops will be successful. The famine is going to go away. And I'm going to pour out so much blessing on you that the nations around you will look, who don't even know or care about Yahweh, will say, wow, they are blessed. Now, there's a lot we need to explain here because unfortunately this passage is abused and misused by false teachers. Um, these preachers will stand up and read from Malachi and then tell you to open up your bank account and give them a check for thousands of dollars. Go put it in the box. And they'll say, if you do this and if you give me all of your money, then God's going to bless you. He's going to multiply it. 
He'll open up the storehouses. So hurry, quick, sign up right now. And here's the special gift. As if he's going to bless you by doubling your money like God is somehow an investment like NFTs, crypto, or the stock market. Um, that's not how this works. And it misunderstands God's word. It's ripping it out of the context and using it to do what we want or to just line people's pockets. So God says this to the people of Israel, people who are still under the Mosaic covenant, who are still under all of those promises. And this blessing, again, it's a reference to the blessings of the covenant, the blessings and the curses of Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, where God says, if you obey me, here is what I will do. And one of the things is I will bless you in your harvests. And I will give you an increase. We talked about the Sabbath on Wednesday night. If every seven years you leave the land alone, I will bless you. In the sixth year, you're going to have way more than you could have ever imagined. And if you disobey God, don't keep it. Like night tithing, you're going to experience curses. So these verses are not a call for us to test God by sending TV preachers money or by putting extra money in that box today. That's not what I'm trying to do at all this morning. But it is a call for Israel to believe what God has already told them time and time and time again. That in America, right, we're not Israel. The church has been grafted into the people of God, but we're no longer under the law. We're under the new covenant of Jesus' blood. And the prosperity gospel will tell us well, God is worthy because He's going to give lots of money back. So that's why we should give, because then we'll get more. No, no, no. That is not true. Giving to God today doesn't mean you're always going to get a raise. It doesn't mean you're going to be safe when the next layoffs come. Now, you will be blessed, but your blessing might not come in this life. It might come in the next one. Well, it will come in the next one. Your blessing now may come in the presence of the Holy Spirit being with you in every circumstance, and helping you be content. And God is worthy. God is worthy of all that we have, not because of what He gives us back, but just because of His unchanging nature and who He is. And that should be enough. So, but don't misunderstand, all right? So the verses are still true. The principle remains, but our application is much different than it is for Israel in Malachi's day. This is not a promise for God to double your money. This is a promise that if you follow him and if you're obedient, he'll be with you. So we don't have to give in the exact same way that they did. If you notice, I haven't told you a percentage to give because I think we are free in Christ to figure that out. But the point is, again, it's all his. We do need to give. We give to the church, to the poor, and the needy because it's God's money. Now, verse 13, your, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? And you say, it's in vain to serve God. What is the profit of keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? This is their main complaint in 14. They think God's no longer worthy. He's not worthy of their worship. He's not worthy of their tithe. He's not worthy of their offerings. They're describing it almost in terms of profit. As if following Jesus can be broken down on a spreadsheet of income and loss. And then I'll look and see if this is a good investment of my life. Verse 15, and now they call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. They say God is not worth it. They're saying, you know, blessed are the arrogant in spirit instead of the poor in spirit. That the arrogant and the proud are better than the humble. Being evil is greater than being holy. They wonder, why are we struggling to make ends meet when I'm tithing, but the wicked are giving nothing and they prosper. And so their conclusion is, well, God is not worthy. But our God has not changed. And He is worthy. He was worthy yesterday. 
He is worthy today, and He will be worthy forever. And we know that our God's justice will come. We know that every single cent, every single moment of obedience, every song of praise, every hand lifted high, every time we tell somebody about Jesus, every moment that we spend meditating on His Word, all of that will be worth it to follow Jesus because He is worthy of everything that we have in every area of our life. So where have we been this morning? We've looked and we've seen. So God is immutable. And because He is immutable, we can trust that His justice is coming. And because He is immutable, He is worthy of all that we have. And so I hope that you are comforted and encouraged by our unchanging God this morning. We should trust that His justice is coming, that we should treat Him like He is worthy, because He is worthy of all that we have, and He will never change. And no eye has seen, or ear has heard, nor mind imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 reminds us. Let's bow our heads in prayer. I'll invite our worship team to come up and lead us once more. Lord, I, I, I praise You that You are unchanging. Lord, that you are are worthy. You are incomprehensible. You are our love and holiness and justice and so many other things. Lord, I I pray that you would encourage us. Lord, I I pray that you would keep us from being distracted by the minutia or or worrying about, well, how much should I or shouldn't I, I give or worrying about our money. And Lord, would we focus on you and who you are? And Lord, would you transform every part of our lives? Lord, would we leave this place just growing in our affection for you and for your word, being reminded that you are worthy because of who you are. We pray this in your holy and your precious name. Amen. Why don't you stand one more time as we um, sing praises to our worthy God. Amen. Hear this benediction from Numbers 6 and the blessing of God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. God bless you. Go in peace.